site this week and go back and listen and be updated. I also hope if you missed the announcement this morning that you'll be planning toward next Sunday. It'll be a fifth Sunday format with worship service and then lunch uh, where we'll be honoring Miss Ann Strickland and her years of service to this congregation and then the early afternoon service at 12.30. And so I hope you'll be making your plans uh, in that direction. Uh, it is good to see my friend and, and former co-worker, uh, Brother Larry Murdoch, with us tonight. It's always good to see the Murdochs and know about the great work that continues to go on at the Gandhi Congregation over in Lawrenceburg. So good to see you all. Chapter 5 of the story is what we want to talk about tonight. And uh, we've talked about it in Bible class this morning. And as you think about what's going on, the, uh, the, the, the idea of God coming back or restoring relationship with the Israelites, we're coming into a time over the next year or so where we're going to be thinking about electing new leaders. And, and one of the things that happens at election time, uh, sometimes it's a time of excitement, uh, sometimes it's a, a time of apprehension uh, because we're often led to believe that as new leaders are put in place, big changes may be coming. And sometimes we, we're excited about that, sometimes we're apprehensive about that, sometimes we really don't know how it's going to go. And so I wonder what it must have been like to be an Israelite at this time because you've had 400 years where God's been very quiet and now He has just come and He's liberated you and, and you have come to Mount Sinai. You're kind of wondering maybe what's going to happen next and so maybe you're excited and maybe you're apprehensive and, and maybe you're just not really sure. But it had to be an interesting time for these people. It's another... Another reason that you'd say it might be interesting, these are some people who seem to be trying to figure out whether or not they can trust God. Because they've come out and when they're thirsty, they've complained. And although every time they've complained, God has taken care of them, it seems like there's still the issue of trying to build trust. Israel is now a great nation. But what we're going to see is with being a great nation and with the covenant that God is going to put in place, with being a great nation is going to also come responsibility. And so God's going to introduce this new covenant. Now, for those of us who are church people and we've been around church a lot, when we think new covenant, we think about we live under in the New Testament. So we're not talking about the new covenant, but we're talking about a new covenant for these people, for the Israelites. When you think about a covenant and when you think about what's going to happen here uh, with God introducing this, um, Dr. Coy Roper wrote this. He said, No other event in the Old Testament seems more significant than the one recorded in Exodus 19, verses 1 through 8. In this passage, God's covenant with Israel defines His relationship with Israel and provides the setting for the rest of the Old Testament. So this is foundational. This is super, super important. And I think it makes sense to be reminded, though, of when we think about a covenant, what is that? Well, what are some attributes? And we talked about this a little bit in our Bible class this morning. Maybe you did as well. But when you think about a covenant, you think about maybe a binding agreement. You think about an agreement that is defined by God. He is the maker of a covenant. He gets to set it up. Uh, we think of the idea of promises being made and hopefully promises being kept. Now, when God makes a promise, it's always going to be kept. He always keeps His word. 
On our side, though, that's where we lack. That's why we need Him. That's why we need His love and His mercy and all those things because He's going to define some things for His people and they're not always going to be really good at fulfilling their end of the deal. When you think about a covenant that God initiates, you're going to think about an intimate relationship. An intimate relationship between God and humankind. Sovereignly initiated maintained and fulfilled by God, involving a commitment to life and to death from both God and humankind. And so this covenant-type language, it permeates the Old Testament. Now, a modern-day term that might come to mind for some of us is sometimes we think in terms of a contract. And we talked about this some in our class. Now, when you think of a contract, it's, a, it's an agreement but when I think contract, I think of something that's, that's cold, that's non-living, but one that's a covenant. A covenant with God, it's more intimate. It testifies to His mercy and His compassion. Because really, when you think about it, we're not people who really even deserve to be in the game. These weren't people who deserve to be in the game, but God is going to love them and, and lavish His love on them. And so the covenant, it defines the relationship between God and His people. And so this language has been used. It's not new to us. Genesis 6, God dealing with Noah, the covenant with Noah, the promise of I will preserve life. I'm not going to destroy life with water again. The Bible says that's a covenant that God made with everybody. And then God talked in terms of having a covenant with Abraham. And now God is setting up one that's really encapsulated in these Ten Commandments and everything that goes with them. Man's core responsibility uh, as far as how to live before God, how to deal with each other. And so in setting this thing up, uh, there are several things that have to be addressed, several things that, that have to be taken care of, and that's what you have in your lesson notes tonight. That's where we're going to focus our study on this part of uh, the story, chapter 5. But number one, God insists... But his people are going to have to live by a set of guidelines. Uh, we might call them rules. We might call any word that you want to use to define that. But God says there are some expectations. There are some things that you're going to need to live by as I define this covenant, covenant for you. Now, during su the summer, we did some lessons about worship. And you may remember we came to Exodus 19 and we found ourselves at the foot of Mount Sinai and we discussed our worship and we discussed the idea of being in the presence of God. God has them there because it's time to communicate to them how to live. Now, Moses is going to make some seven trips up the mountain. I bet he was in pretty good shape at 80 years old by the time he got done up and down the mountain, you know. The people of Israel, it's kind of interesting because initially as, as this all begins to transpire, they're, they're going to buy in. They, they want to be involved in this. Notice Exodus chapter 19. Moses has presented these basics to them, the idea that there's going to be an agreement. And so verse 7 says, So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words with which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the, the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud, so that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. 
And so God sets this up. The people say, yes, we want to be involved in this. Even after Moses initially goes up on the mountain and begins to bring back information to them, when you skip over to Exodus chapter 24, verse 3, the Bible there says, Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the word words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, we understand, and they don't see this in the moment. They're saying, we're going to do this, but we know that can't happen. In other words, because we're human, and because there's sin, because we, on our best day we can't get it completely right, they're, they're set up to fail. Because we can never fully keep the law of the Lord. And it ought to be a reminder of our condition and our mindset. Yes, we want to do what God wants him, us to do. We want to fulfill everything He's asked of us, but, but we are human. I mean, think about the way we tend to react to rules. And the way we tend to react to regulations. We, we don't even... In fact, that's almost one of those words. If you put it into a conversation, there's almost a wall that's going to go up sometimes with folks. 2015, and we're not talking just about things religious, not just talking about church. We live in a society where rules are a negative. And, and we need rules, not for me, we need rules for you. Because see, I'm a good guy and I'm going to be alright on my own, but we need a rule in place because you might just be out of control. Isn't that how we look at rules? We need them for other people. I don't need them for me, but we need them for others. And the feeling of not, or that the idea of not respecting authority and not respecting the idea of a rule or a regulation, it permeates our society today. Uh, my friend Glenn preaches out in California, and he's got three uh, sons who are, uh, well, one's out of high school, one's in the middle of high school, one's in middle school, and so the weather warms up, and, and the clothes kind of come off, and he's raising young men, and there's a dress code at school. You can wear shorts to school, and the dress code in the handbook says that the inseam on the shorts has to be three inches. Now, that's not an issue for guys. Guys, not going to wear little shorty shorts to school, but the girls. And so, my friend Glenn called up the principal, and he wasn't trying to be confrontational. He, was just, he just called up and said, listen, he said, you know, I, I've read the handbook, and I know this is in there, and I, but I see, I know it's not respected and he said I remember being 17 and you know my, my sons they, they, how are they going to focus on school I mean they don't need to see that all day long and the principal it was just it was just a just defeated you know he said I know it's in there but it's hard to get the teachers to enforce it and he said you know what happens if we if we enforce that rule if we send somebody home for having violated the dress code you know what happens he said the parents go ballistic and from the principal's standpoint, it was like, yeah, there's a rule, but it's just not worth it. Uh, closer to home. Think about years ago when we started trying to get serious about having a law that said when you get in the car, you really ought to have your seatbelt on. I remember the old 72 Dodge when we were growing up. The seatbelt was this irritating thing that if it ever came undone, you rebuckled it behind you because it was the first car we'd had where if it was undone, it would make this horrendous buzzing noise. And so we would take that and we would buckle it, but then we never would wear it. Because that was just 
Ridiculous, right? And then they passed a law and we really got irritated because now why in the world would you be able to tell me that when I get in my car to take care of my business in my own personal space that's not affecting anybody else, why should you be able to tell me that I need to wear a seatbelt? You, you remember all that that we went through. And finally I realized it's important. I had an old 76 Chevy pickup truck and I was down at the farm and I was running from one area over to another on an old gravel road and so I just jumped in the truck and I'm driving. Well, I, there was a curve that I'd forgotten about until I was in the curve. And so I kind of bounced through the ditch and when I almost bounced myself from the driver's seat into the passenger seat, I realized I really ought to have a seatbelt on. But that's kind of our nature. Another thing that happens to us where there are some rules we like to be the exception I was talking to my friend Vicki this week she goes to church with us in Russellville and I said Vicki I think you're going to be in the sermon Sunday night and I wanted to make sure she didn't have a problem with it and, and she was excited you know why and I said well it's because of your relationship with the Littleville Police Department and she's like oh yeah you know, Littleville, they, they patrol and they'll pull you over and they'll write you tickets unless your name is Vicky. Because Vicky can go blasting through there and it's become a joke. You know, the, the last time they pulled her over, she'd run to the store, didn't even have her purse with her. And, you know, they pull her over and they just kind of laugh. And it's just one of those, they've, she's the exception to the rule with the Littleville Police Department. And we love to be in that position because sometimes the rules are kind of, kind of a pain. There was, uh, you may have, if, if you were looking at some of the reference material that went with the story this week, you may have noticed the illustration about the little girl and she'd gotten in trouble with her mother and so her mother put her in a timeout and sat her in the corner and, and the little girl's response finally to her mother was, well, I'm sitting down on the outside but standing up on the inside. And that's kind of who we are sometimes. And so here's God saying, well, there are some things that you're going to need to, to, to live by. And it becomes very important for us to try to be the people who are countercultural. In other words, the kind of people who, even though there are rules, we try not to bristle at those rules, where maybe even on the inside sometimes we want to, but, but, but outwardly we've got to do everything we can to say, you know, that's there for me. That's there to bless me. Because when you think about our role, when you think about evangelism, when you think about trying to share Jesus with a world where respect for authority is, is probably at an all-time low, we, we, we're trying to introduce God to people. And we want to talk about His love and we want to talk about His mercy and His grace. The idea that God loves you, God sent a Son, and God wants a relationship with you. And, 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 but at some point, if we're going to present a holistic view of God, we've got to get around to saying, you know, there's also this idea that God has some expectations. Yes, He wants to save you and yes, he loves you, and yes, He gave a son, but hey, there's some expectations that He has for the way that we live our lives. And that's why when people see us living life, hopefully they see us embracing the idea that yes, we're into following God. And that's why relationships with people are important. It makes those hard conversations easier. Because in the end, we've got to embrace and we've got to help those that we teach to understand that doctrine the idea that God requires something, what God says God wants, that all of that is important. Think about the golden calf that we read about this week. 
We're not going to spend a lot of time on that tonight. I don't know what happened with Aaron. <laughs> That's funny stuff. But in the end, God does punish them. Notice Exodus chapter 32, uh, beginning in verse 30. On the next day, Moses said to the people, You yourselves have committed a great sin. And now I'm going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And that introduces a concept where Moses is uh, introducing the concept of of there needs to be an atonement made. And he's positioned as the, the intermediary. He's positioned as the intercessor in a sense. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin and they've made a God of gold for themselves. But now, if you will... Forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out of your book from which you've written. Moses is a good leader. Like Bill was talking about it in his prayer tonight. Moses, he's pleading for his own people, and he says, you know, if if, if we can't, if you can't show mercy here, just, just blot me out along with them. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But go now, lead the people where I told you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. Then the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. God loves them. He wants to be in relationship with them. He's setting up a covenant with them. But when they ignore their part, He punishes them. As we think about this aspect of things, maybe one thing that will help us is the idea of remembering that God never asks anything from us that isn't in our best interest. Over and over in Scripture, if God is is saying, I need this or I need you to do that, He's never going to ask something that's not in our best interest. And that may help us to remember in those times when maybe I do kind of bristle up under what he said, or I'm questioning, questioning in my mind whether what he said is actually best. So God provides guidelines for his people. The second thing that has to be resolved, and we're going to move a little bit more quickly, God needs a place to stay. An aspect of God being with his people again is for him to provide something visual, not for him, but for the people. And so you put yourself in the shoes of these Israelites and what must it have been like to see Moses. Uh, You know, your role isn't Moses. Moses is the intermediary. You're kind of glad your job isn't Moses' job because Moses is the one who has to actually go in there and interact with God. And that's got to be pressure-filled and that's got to be kind of scary. He's standing between you and God. But every time Moses gets ready to go to that tent of of meeting. You go to the door of your tent and you watch him go. And as you see him go in and as you see the cloud coming down, you fall and you worship in the door of your tent. There's something visual. God has found a place to stay. First in the tent of meeting. Things are happening. Notice Exodus chapter 33. And notice verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And it came about whenever Moses went out to the tent that all the people would arise and stand each at the entrance of his tent and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. 
Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship, each at the entrance of his tent. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. See, the people, even though God has done all these things already in getting them out of Egypt, in keeping them safe, in feeding them, in making sure they've got something to drink, even though He's done all these things, the people still need to know that God's among them. And they need to know that that Moses, when Moses is going into that tent, that Moses is actually getting something from God. God has positioned Moses that way. God talks about that back in Exodus 19 verse 9. I'm positioning you so that the people will actually believe in you. Now remember, inside this tent, not even Moses is literally going to see God face to face. Uh, There's going to be a discussion about that later on. But Moses is in there to interact with God. Then there's the tabernacle, Exodus 35 through 40. Uh, The place that would move with them as they went, intricate in design, the, the place where God would dwell... There's some interesting things here because we do, we beat the Israelites up. We, we, we look at them and we think about how God's interacting and how God's present and we wonder how they could mess up. Sometimes we beat them up, but when it came to getting the tabernacle done and setting up everything to be in place for the tabernacle, they really did well. The theme of this building project in Exodus chapter 35, it is all about a willing heart. If you do have your Bible open, notice Exodus 35, and I want you to notice what is said uh, beginning in verse 4. Moses spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, Take from among you a contribution to the Lord, whoever is of a willing heart. Let him bring it as the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze. He's asking that God is commanding, but God is saying, what I want to see happen is I want people to show up with things. I want them to show up with things for the tabernacle, but I want the people to show up those who have a willing heart. Free will offerings. And in fact, people get involved in this, and as you read through Exodus 35, I I think I counted up and into the beginning of 36, six different times that the Bible talks about the idea people are doing this free will. They're not being forced, their arms aren't being twisted, they're they're involved in this simply because they want to be. And they're bringing things on a daily basis. Notice chapter 36, verse 3. They received from Moses all the contributions which the sons of Israel had brought to perform the work in the construction of the sanctuary, and they still continued bringing to him free will offerings every morning. In fact, they're so involved in this, what we would call a ministry, they're so involved in this sacrificial way of of getting things done that notice what verse 6 says. So Moses issued a command and a proclamation was circulated throughout the camp saying, let no man or woman any longer perform work for the contributions of the sanctuary, thus the people were restrained from bringing any more. 
For the material they had was sufficient and more than enough for all the work to perform it. I mean, can you imagine a day and a time where when Steve gets up to talk to us about what's going on with his work, that he shows us this building, and then he shows us that building, and then he shows us one under construction, and he says, you know what, you all have been so generous that, that we've done everything we need to do. That's never going to happen. There's always more that we need to do. Uh, for us at school, there, there's always, when somebody blesses us in some way, it allows us to do something we've been waiting to do. That's just the nature of how generosity and missions and all those sorts of things work. But here in Exodus, these people are so generous that Moses finally has to throw up the stop sign. That's amazing. It's powerful. And so we beat them up a lot, but in setting up a place for God to stay, they are generous. So they resolve that. And then the third thing is that God requires a way uh, to restore relationship between a holy God and a sinful people. Sin is this problem. Sin is... is, is it's got to be dealt with. Now remember... As we've been talking about the upper story, what is God trying to accomplish through all of this? When we look at it from a high level, God has created, back in the garden, a perfect state. Where He's in the garden, He's interacting with Adam and Eve. Man was pure. There is no sin. But then Adam and Eve rejected that perfection. Sin enters. It breaks harmony. It breaks unity. It puts a, puts a distance between them and God. And so the story becomes about restoring relationship. But something has to be done about sin. Because God can't look on it. God can't ignore it. Now sometimes we, we can have conversations with people. We, there's something going on and we know there's a problem and they know there's a problem, but we'll get in and we'll have a conversation and we'll ignore the elephant in the room, whatever that may be. Well, God can't look at sin like the elephant in the room and just carry on like it's not there. Something has to be done. You remember Isaiah 59 verse 2 talking about your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. Your, your sins have hidden His face from you. It's not His fault. It's the sin. Your sins have, have created this situation where He can't hear you right now. Sin has to be dealt with. Think about the golden calf scene. I mean, we're just barely into this new covenant situation, just getting the information out there. And while Moses is still up on the mountain receiving the information, God says, hey, Moses, you better get back, back down there. These people that you're leading, they're out of control. In fact, God says to Moses, you need to get out of my face because uh, you need, it says in verse 10, Now then let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them and I'll make you a great nation. In fact, I'm going to take them out. I'm still going to make a great nation through you, but, but I'm done with them. And just like Bill prayed about and mentioned in our prayer, Moses moves into this mode of trying to intercede for the people. In fact, he entreats God. Notice verse 11. And Moses entreated the Lord as God and said, O oh Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you've brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Moses is brave. Because he stands in front of God and says, God, you, you might want to rethink this. You know, you're, you, may, you destroy them and you kind of make yourself look bad. 
And God relents. Sin has to be dealt with. In fact, God states coming out of this that initially He's, I'm not going to be with these people. And Moses intercedes again. Notice the beginning of chapter 33. The Lord spoke to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you've brought up from the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I'll give it. I'll send an angel before you, and I'll drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, because you're an obstinate people, and I may destroy you on the way. You all go, but I'm not with you. That had to be a bad moment for Moses. Causes him to intercede on behalf of the people yet again. And so God ends up going with them. When you read 12 through 17, you see Moses jumping back into that role of of pleading on behalf of the people. And so in God's system for dealing with sin, and it is His system, and when you own something, when you create something, you get to decide how it works. So in His system... A system is going to be put in place that includes in it this core principle whereby something perfect, something pure, something innocent is going to be punished for the guilty. Does that sound familiar? You get to the beginning of Leviticus and you begin to understand how all these different sacrifices are going to work. And the sacrifice involved going out and taking a select animal from your herd. You didn't go out and cull something that needed to be culled anyway. The one you didn't want breeding with other animals. No, you didn't go out and take what was worse. You went out and you took the best you had and you took that best animal, that pure animal, that innocent animal. And, and you know, we need to understand that because... You know, we're very partial to our animals today. We, we have pets and we, we, we read about animal sacrifice and that doesn't, that doesn't add up for us in 2015. But it is this idea, yeah, that animal was pure and that animal was innocent. And the idea was that animal is going to bear the punishment for your sin, for your guilt. And of course, later on, that will be Jesus. As we conclude... And we think in terms of looking at God's plan from an upper story level. We need to be reminded about how blessed we are today. Because these three things that we've talked about tonight, the idea that there are are rules, there are regulations, there has to be a place for God to stay, God is requiring a way to restore fellowship. When you think about our situation today, God has taken care of all three things, three of these things for us. And I want to think about them in reverse order. We talked about the idea, sin, something has to be done about sin. And if, you've, if you're not new to the Bible, if you've been studying the Bible, you realize that the reason there's a new covenant now, that old covenant didn't really take away sin. Moved it forward until a day where Jesus could take care of it. But sin has been now atoned for once and for all. Notice the beginning of Hebrews chapter 10. The downside to the sacrificial system that was going to come into place for them, you had to repeat the same process over and over and over. And every time you're going back and repeating the sacrifice over and over and over, you're being reminded of your sin over and over and over. And so God's ultimate upper story plan is that Jesus would end up being sacrificed one time 
for everybody, for them, and for us. Notice the beginning of Hebrews chapter 10. Notice the first four verses. For the law, talking about that old covenant, since it has been only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Turn back into Hebrews 9. Notice verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood, He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats... Or the blood of, if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who've been defiled uh, sanctify those of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who suffered through the eternal Spirit, offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You see what's been done for us? Yeah, we're jumping ahead in the story, but that's where we're headed. The other thing that we think about is that we are now the place where God stays. He dwells within us. Yes, when we come together to worship, He's in our midst, He's in our presence, but notice what begins to be said about the heart there. Still in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, notice beginning in verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. So how does God accomplish this living within us thing? Well, turn over to Romans chapter 8. Romans the 8th chapter, and we'll notice beginning in verse 9. There Paul writes, However, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells with you. God is in us. Now, I realize that this is an aspect of who we are that sometimes makes us a little bit nervous. It maybe makes us a little bit frustrated. And when we're acting nervous or frustrated about God being in us, we do that to our disadvantage. I don't think we talk as much about the Holy Spirit, the idea of God dwelling in us. I don't think we talk as much about the Holy Spirit as probably we should. Not because it's hard to understand what the Bible says but because it's hard to confirm what the Bible says as being real. 
Because God says some things that we have to have faith in Him to, to believe and understand as being real. The other thing that we've done sometimes is we've tried to position ourselves away from, you know, God told me what to preach today. And we've tried to run from that. And I fear maybe sometimes that we've tried to run so far that we've tried to limit the role of the Holy Spirit as God defines it in Scripture. Israel was under an imperfect roll-forward system, but I love the fact that they could see that cloud descend on the tent of meeting. And they could see the face of Moses shine when he came out of there. The idea that he had to veil his face because he'd been in the presence of God. And they could see God being active. Yet for us today, we're under a better system, but we've got to have faith. Faith in the fact that God the Spirit is in us because the Bible says that He is. It's over and over and over in Scripture. And the idea that God the Spirit is playing an active role in helping us get to heaven. Even if we can't confirm His work because somebody's face is shiny, and somebody's face has to be veiled because they've been in the presence of God or because there's a spoken message that's just so loud that we know it's from God... We are the place where God dwells. And we need to embrace that. Finally, God does still insist that we live by His rules, His guidelines, however you want to say that, His ordinances. And recognizing what He's done for us, it ought to have this profound impact on on the way that we treat both Him and each other. In other words, we, we live in a time where what he says, it does still matter. And, and sometimes we read these verses a lot. But 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, All Scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We said it before, God never asks anything of us that's not in our best interest. We may not always understand why He's asked something, but it's all about helping us be everything we need to be. And I realize we live in a world where that's not always a popular message. But it is one we've got to be willing to communicate in a loving and in a positive way. The other thing that it ought to do when we're reminded of the idea God has expectations and then I go to the mirror and I see how miserable I am at times at living those things out, it ought to make us so thankful for His love and His grace and His mercy. The idea that even though we live it out imperfectly, that He still wants that relationship with us. In talking about the tabernacle earlier, we mentioned that it was commanded, but that it all happened. The command was, I want people who want to be involved. It was about free will. And as we get ready to sing the song that Ben has selected tonight, there is this reminder that God operates with us in the same way today. All of this story that we're, that, that we're talking about and that we're finally going to end up at the cross and we're finally going to end up seeing Jesus go every, through everything He goes through. God puts all of this in place, but then He comes back and He says, Hey, the ball's in your court. I'm leaving it up to you. I've done everything on my side that I need to do, but, but if you want this, it's, it's yours. Just You've got to be willing to surrender to me, surrender your will to mine, be killed like Steve talked about this morning, 
and make it about God. And so as we get ready to sing that song that's been selected, Debbie showed us what being a family is about this morning. She came and said, hey, please pray for my daughter. You know, maybe you're at a place where you need this church family praying for you. Maybe your exercise of will tonight needs to be, though, a starting over with God. In other words, I know God's done everything for me, and I really haven't been living up to that on my end, and I need to make a new start. Maybe you need to make a new start tonight. Maybe you need to be in the waters of baptism tonight. If you have a need, let that be known while we stand and while we sing. I